All right, welcome back to Chasing Majors, a podcast where where we chronicle the pursuit of the ultimate goal in professional golf, and that's winning majors. And, and nobody knows the majors better than my guest today. Bob Harrig is one of the most revered golf writers in the world. He's just penned a book, an incredible book called Tiger and Phil, Golf's Most Fascinating Rivalry. It's available on Amazon and any good bookstore very soon. And it's, uh, it's a wonderful contribution to the historical timeline of not only Tiger Woods, but also Phil Mickelson. So, so Bobby, thanks for joining us on the pod. And, and first of all, tell us about, you know, the inspiration behind writing the book. Yeah, well, well thanks for having me, Evan. And uh, the inspiration sort of just kind of came, I don't know if it was just some thing that hit me, but after Tiger won the Masters in 2019, it seemed to me that that might be the end. You know, obviously there's been a lot more that's gone on since. Uh, with these two guys, but I thought that might be the end of major championships. And I kind of wanted to try to capture that. And it occurred to me that not much had been done on this related to Phil. And that if you looked back, Tiger's career really did intertwine with Phil's a lot, even though Tiger has a much better record um, even though, uh, you know, Phil was never number one in the world. He never was player of the year. There's a lot of things that Phil never achieved. And yet Phil's been in the hall of fame for 10 years. And if there had yeah. been no tiger, Phil's record would dwarf everybody else's. And when you started digging into it, you noticed how much they intersected. They were kind of you know, battling for, uh, there was a period there where they were, they were the ones going after the majors in the mid two thousands. Uh, and really, although there were others who, who came about VJ for one, Ernie Els, Padraig Harrington, you know, they're Tief Goosen, there have been other players who stepped up and won majors or multiple majors, even Marco Mira way back. Um, you know, it was, it was Tiger and Phil who sort of were there the whole time. And I just thought it would be kind of neat to, to go back and, and chronicle them from the beginning. And it's amazing how many times without, you, you have to look for it, but how much their careers kind of crossed. And like one of the greatest examples to me was on the day that Tiger won his third straight U.S. Amateur, uh, which was in 1996. It's incredible feat at the time. It was he, he had immense following at that point. There was so much hype about going for three in a row. On the same day, Phil won what was then called the World Series of Golf at Firestone, and he beat Greg Norman to win his ninth, to beat, <laughs> to, to, to win his ninth PGA Tour title and, and move into wow. the top ten in the world for the first time. And it was and, and Tiger completely Absolutely. That. All the players at Firestone, when the round was ending – we're all watching Tiger try to try to win that third straight U.S. Amateur, which he did, and then a few days later turned pro. And Phil and Phil You're was kidding. sort of dwarfed, but it was amazing. Phil was at the time twenty five years old, nine wins, incredible start to his career. No majors yet, obviously. That was going to take a while, um, and and was sort of living up to his promise, just like you know, just like Tiger had a lot of promise. Phil had a lot of promise. Beats Greg Norman. In the aftermath of that, Phil was very, very pleased with having earned a 10-year exemption for that win. That's what you got for it at the time. It's crazy to think that Phil ever worried about that. But back then, that was huge. <laughs> and so anyway, that's just a great intersection of their careers. That was just sort of happenstance. But yet, that's what happened. It was crazy to think that that was, you know, that was a thing back then. And just to paint the picture a little bit for the listeners about who you are, you're one of the most, you know, one of the closest journalists anyone's you know gotten to Tiger over the last sort of fifteen to twenty years, and and it's funny that you mentioned that the inspiration for writing the book came just after Tiger won the Masters because obviously you know you and I are colleagues. I was there covering the Masters as well, and I noticed something out of my peripherals when when Tiger's winning press conference ended. You actually walked up to the day and you kind of you know you wanted to get some sort of interaction from Tiger and let him know that you were proud of him. And you sort of went up and you said, hey, Tiger, you know, like you, you did it. And he, and he sort of said like, yeah, how about that? And gave you a bit of a fist pump. And then he walked off behind the scenes. And I just thought it was really cool. So that's the kind of relationship you had with Tiger, don't you? And, and, and sort of where did that all begin? How did you earn that trust from him? Well, actually, there's a little bit more to that. When I went up to him 
I, I, I made a joke in that, you know, there was all this talk um, when he was coming back, you know, he wasn't exempt for the U S open in, in, uh, in, in 2020, he wouldn't have been, he only was exempt for the 19 U S open at Pebble beach because he had finished top 30 the year before, you know, he was in the top 30 of FedEx cup. So what I said to him, in addition to congratulating him was, Hey, and guess what? Now you're exempt for the U S open going forward. And he just kind of <laughs> laughed at it. You know, it was a little, it was a little, it was a little joke. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, uh, but I mean, how did it, how did that all come about? I don't know. I mean, obviously working at ESPN at the time really helped. Um, you know, he was very aware of ESPN, ESPN, uh, you know, obviously there was a lot of reach. Um, and you know, I knew him, um, decently enough, you know, I covered him in my newspaper career. I worked at a Florida newspaper before I worked at the, before I worked at ESPN and in the late 2000s, around the you know the U.S. Open time, 08, when he won, uh, 09, when he was winning everywhere. I mean, I, he he became more and more familiar with me. But I think where my relationship solidified with him was after he came back from the scandal in 2010. And I remember I sort of made this conscious effort as a golf writer that I wasn't going to continually dwell on that. In other words, I felt it was, if I felt it was the role of other people to, you know, obviously there was parts of it you couldn't ignore, but yeah, but we got to a certain point six months after he returned, say three months after his return, where you had to bring it back to the golf and you couldn't always be writing about everything in relation to that scandal even though there were sometimes you couldn't avoid it. And I think I made a conscious effort to just be fair. And I think they appreciated that. You know, I think his agent, Mark Steinberg appreciated that. I was sort of trying to be, yeah, there was a lot, there was a lot of people that took shots and there was a lot of, you know, there, that became like the second or third graph of every story. And while yes, there were times when it was important to note it, uh, if he got a question about it, certainly, or, you know, when he got divorced, when that came on later in 2010, that was a moment where you couldn't ignore it. But there were other times that it couldn't always be about that. And I, I, I don't know. I just think that helped. You know, I thought my role was to just make it more about what's about the golf and that you couldn't always pin it on what had happened uh, during that time frame. Just quickly, what, what does that look like? When, when you make a conscious effort to remove the scandal from, from your copy and from your stories, um, like, like how do, what does that look like? I, I think it is just a more a matter of you're not always saying, you know, Woods, who's playing his fifth tournament since returning from the scandal. Hmm. You know, I mean, there comes a, now maybe I did that in the fifth tournament, but I think there came a point where you had, to, at least for me, I'm not saying others, there's commentators, there's columnists, but for me as a golf writer covering the sport, while not ignoring it, I just don't think you could always make it the focus. Hmm. Some people made it the focus. He got a lot of he got a lot of attention. Obviously, a lot of negativity. Uh, you know, I understand all that. But there came a point when he was struggling. He was just playing golf, um, and I try to keep it to the golf. And I think that uh, not and not to ignore it. I mean, you could. There are certain times when you couldn't. But I, I don't know. I just think they appreciated that. And I wasn't out front and hammering him. Um, it, I just didn't feel that was my role. You know, I didn't feel it was my role to have this this harsh opinion of what he had done. Um, obviously, it was going to come out just through the through the facts, you know, and that's what I did. I try to keep it to the facts. Did Tiger or, or his agent, Mark Steinberg, did they ever sort of thank you for that coverage? Was there ever an actual acknowledgement that, you know, hey, thanks for doing that, letting him move on? No, no, there wasn't. But, but I mean, I think it was just sort of understood. Uh, they, you know, they, they saw me as someone who was trying to be fair to him, hmm. you know. And maybe, you know, there's people that think I was too fair to him. Maybe people thought I, was, I went too far on, on his side. You know, but it, but from my role, I'm. This was a very sensitive time, and you're trying to get access. And there was a segment of people that wanted to know about the golf. Remember how young he was 
in 2010 when he returned. Yeah. You know, he was what 34, 35 years old. Yeah, he had a lot of his career to go. Nobody thought it was going to be what 11 years before he won a major. You know, 11 years between majors. Yeah. And they at some point expected him to start to pick that back up. And I sensed that, you know, as long as there was nothing that came out from the scandal that was illegal, you know, uh, as, as bad as it was and as, as difficult yeah. as it was, there, there was going to come a point where we were going to get back to golf and he was going to start winning again. And then it became important for me to learn about like what, how, how, we, how are we going to get there? what were going to be the steps along the way. And that period from before his back stuff started up in 2013, 14, remember he won eight times in, in 12 and 13. That was, he rose back again. He got back to number one in the world. That was a very important part of his career. He never, he didn't win a major, but mm. there was a lot of good golf from him then. And that was sort of the time when, when I thought it really paid off. You know, like I, I learned a lot from him during those during those those times, those that tournament stretch when he was doing very well. Does anything stick out about what you learned during that stretch? Um, you know, I think he was he was humbled. Um, he was uh, I got the sense that the whole thing. Um, he, now, listen, he didn't always let this off publicly, and I don't think that helped. You know, there was sometimes he reverted to the old tiger, but mm. I sensed that there was that there was remorse, that there was some, and then there was even some embarrassment. Mm. Um, you know that that he knew that that all those. I mean, think of anybody having that sort of stuff disclosed about them, and it, you know, one tenth of what was disclosed for any person would be incredible to deal with. Imagine for him, you know, and so uh, look, I'm not, I'm not absolving him. I'm not, I'm not condoning it or anything like that. I want to be clear, but he was a human being who had feelings and who obviously let, you know, it, it bothered him. And mm -hmm. I, and, and I just sort of got that sense that he was a little bit humbled. He tried a little bit harder with the media, not everybody, okay. but he tried. I, I thought he tried. I tried, he tried. And look, we've seen that way more since he's come back from the injuries. He's been far more uh, had far more perspective since the since the spinal fusion surgery, but even in that period back in the early you know like 2011, 12, 13 time frame, I thought he was better. I thought he was way better than he had been, you know, pre scandal. Once you were putting that book together, um, Tiger and Phil, did that sort of did that help the the way that you had sort of really been fair towards Tiger and and also fair towards Phil's camp as well? I just think it helped me have have a perspective. Like as I was writing about these various points in their careers, I, you know, I knew some of the backstory. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I I could I could draw on, um, you know, things that that I learned in those days. And look, I don't I didn't write anything in the book that I was that I was told in confidence during those times. Mm -hmm. But there are moments that I witnessed that maybe I didn't report on that, that were easier to talk about in the book hmm. uh, and, or expand upon in the book. Uh, and, and look, you know, I didn't, I didn't really get help from either one of them on the book. Uh, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't blocked or anything, but the way it worked with Tiger was, you know, I kind of started the project um, just after the start of the pandemic in 2020. Well, obviously they weren't playing for three months. Yeah. And when they came back, we couldn't get near them. We yeah. just could not get near them. We couldn't go in a locker room. We weren't allowed inside the ropes. And there was no appropriate time for me to actually even approach Tiger and bring this up. You know, like, yeah. you, you, like I needed to maybe get him at his car or something like that just to tell him. And finally, when I was, it, it, there came a point where I had to let him know and I had to tell uh, Rob McNamara, his friend. I, I wanted to tell Tiger myself, and I tried to get Rob to get him to call me. And he was like, well, he's going to want to know what it's about. And we went this, we played this cat and mouse game of, well, I don't want to tell you what it's about because I don't want you to tell him. I'll tell you if you don't tell him. And finally, you know, I told him and he ended up telling Tiger. And then Tiger said, okay, I know I don't, I don't need to talk to him. <laughs> I, I never got the sense that he was upset about it, but I'm, I don't think, I don't know that he was happy about it. These guys don't like books being written about them. Yeah. You know, they, they want to control the narrative. 
And um, because books are like, books are, you know, the ship sails. Once it's printed, it's irreversible. Right. right? So, so they feel like anything that's put in that book, they only get one chance to get it right. And then it is a historical reference for golf forevermore. Well, that's why they, that's why they should be helpful. Hmm. seriously that's why yeah that's why book subjects should help authors especially ones that they know and trust because that it gives them a chance to to frame it better and and human nature is if they help you you're probably going to just skew towards giving them the benefit of the doubt on something you know now i don't there's there's nothing in this book that's egregious towards either one but i'm sure there's some things in there that would annoy them that they might not particularly care about to have in a book, you know, little petty things that occurred throughout the years. Um, and uh, so, you know, any, from- any favorite ones, like along those lines and any sort of any little nuggets that you sort of thought, oh, this might annoy Tiger or Phil, but it's great for the readers. And you, you feel like you almost owe the readers those little nuggets. No question. There's, there's one about Rich Beam in 2002 PGA. I mean, it's I would have loved to have asked Tiger about it. I wish I could have. Because it, it, it defies, like, why would you do that? But, but well, the, the situation, you know, quickly was he, he was, he, Tiger was having a great year in 02. He won the first two majors. He went to Muirfield with a chance to win the third leg of the Grand Slam. It blew up in, the, in a horrific weather day on the third day when he, for the first time in his career, he didn't break 80 in a, in a mm. tour event, or in, on tour as a pro. And then he comes, you know, so he obviously doesn't win there. And then he comes back at the PGA at Hazeltine. He's in contention. He's in the he's in the second to last group with Fred Funk, a couple shots behind Rich Beam. Rich Beam, who had a hot summer, uh, uh, had a six-shot lead with nine holes to go. So it looks like it's over. Tiger ends up birdieing the last four holes to make it interesting. So Beam's got to make a bogey on 18 to win. And he does make a bogey. He had to make about a two or three footer for the bogey. You know, he was, a, he, he was a little shaky coming in. So Tiger's yep. in scoring with Fred Funk and sort of, you know, signing his card, watching this play out on TV and beam holes out, does his little jig on the green. And Tiger actually stood up and did a fist pump and said, yes. And Fred Funk looked at him like he was nuts. Like, what are you doing? He just won. <laughs> and Tiger said, um, Tiger said, that's Rich Beam one, Phil Mickelson zero. <laughs> and, he, and he walked out. And it was like, it was a weird flex. I mean, at that point, you got to remember, Tiger had eight majors. Phil didn't have any. Hmm. It was starting to gnaw at Phil that he wasn't winning majors. Now he's in his early 30s, hasn't won one yet, was on tour a few years before Tiger. And now Tiger's blown by him. And yet Phil wasn't in contention at that PGA. And I'm not quite sure why, why Tigers took such glee in it, but yet <laughs> it does kind of show, I mean, look, he was thrilled. Rich beam one off. He didn't see rich beam as a rival. The mm. longer Phil didn't get one, the better it was going to be for tiger. And then of course that changed in 04 when Phil did finally get the masters had a great year in the majors and tiger didn't. That was sort of game on. You know, and from that point on, Tiger won seven majors and Phil won six. They were much closer after that in terms of their their back and forth. So that was, yeah. but I mean, to me, is that something that Tiger would like to have out there? Probably not. Sounds a little petty. It also shows his competitiveness, you know. But it's incredibly interesting. And I'm glad you did put that in the book. And uh, along those lines, what else did you learn about Tiger and, and also Phil uh, as you write the book, as you research people, I, I believe that you interviewed over 150 players, caddies, coaches, you know, tournament officials. Because for me, you know, obviously the series one of Chasing Majors was with Steve Williams, co-hosted with Steve Williams, Tiger's caddy for 12 years. And and over the course of recording those episodes, I sort of learned that, you know, the amount of pressure that Steve Williams was under was just absolutely phenomenal. You know, he was he was obviously like we knew that he was under pressure because he snapped at some photographers and. And there were a couple of, of little ugly incidents there. But as I really got to know Steve, I, I realized he's a lovely guy that sort of, you know, the pressure of caddying for arguably the greatest golfer ever, it, it brought out his worst side at times. And, mm-hmm. and he's not particularly proud of that, but he probably wouldn't change anything because it allowed him to do his job to the best of his ability. When you were researching this book, um, what did you learn about Tiger that you sort of didn't know before you started the project? 
Well, first, let me say something about Steve, because you bring up a great point. Um, you know, during that time, Steve was a very difficult character to deal with. Hmm. You know, we've come to be we've come to get used to possibly talking to caddies, you know, for insight. Joe Lacava has been great. Bones was always great. Um, you know, they're they're a resource. And Steve was not. He was standoffish and he wasn't quoted very often. And he, and he, and he looked at us with disdain, like we were a nuisance, you know, and, and, but, but in talking to him several times after he's not caddied for tiger, he's, he is very aware. And I appreciate this so much of tiger's place in history and his place in that history. And he's been very, very good at sharing the insight into what those guys did, especially, you know, what Tiger did, what he was part of, what he had a front row seat to. Mm. And it's, it's good on him. You know, it's, it's important. And I'm not sure that Tiger, Tiger at times has grasped that. He's been very, you know, like he was very good at recounting the 2008 U.S. Open 10 years later. He recognized how big of a deal that was. He wrote his own book about the 97 Masters. But, you know, I, I don't know if he's to the point yet of, of being able to put it all in perspective and, and, and letting you inside mm. what all was going on. And so, you know, what did I learn about him? I mean, I think a couple things. Um, in many, many ways, he was just a normal guy. Like if you could strip away all the fame, you know, he watched some of the TV shows we watched. He, you know, he was he was keenly aware of things going on in the world. Um, he had his opinions about s certain things here and there. He was not a sheltered individual at all, even though that's sort of the the um, you know the the side we see. And to his closest friends, he's really you know he's really good friends. Hmm. You know, I, I I I thought that was interesting. I mean, and yet there was there was there was a couple of times that I thought it was funny, like we were this is several years ago now, but somehow the subject of Twitter came up and we were discussing it. And obviously he's got 6 million, some followers and, you know, like it was clear that he does some of his own tweeting, but does like, he really, yeah, he does. He doesn't, it's not all his team. He does some is, of his own, but like, is that what it's, is that when it's usually signed off TW? Yeah. Although, but like, even like, even like, I think like some of the recent stuff, you know, like when he was going, when he said he was going to Augusta to try it, I think that was him. Okay. Yeah. I think it was him. Um, and he certainly is going to sign off on the stuff that's, that's, uh, yeah. you know, of course. but like he had absolutely no clue what any of it meant. Like he didn't know what, you know, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, just you know, being tagged or, or, or you know, quite retweet or something uh, like that. No chance. <laughs> he had he didn't know what replies were. It was and it was just really funny to talk to him about that. You mm. know, like he was like, "Well, wait, what do you mean? What do you what do you mean about that?" And I would go on my phone and show him. Well, you see, I did this, and somebody came back with this, and then somebody <laughs> gave me crap about this, and he was just like shaking his head, like he just couldn't relate. Like he was like, "Why do you even look at it?" And just, I'm like, wow, there you, there you go. There's a good lesson for us all, right? Why even look at it? But why even look at it? Yeah. Do you think that? Do you think that any athlete in history has had the ability to create hysteria, particularly in the social media age, than than Tiger Woods? Is there anyone else? Uh yeah, I don't know. You know, it's crazy to think. In in a way, he's fortunate that that it wasn't worse. That there wasn't more of this before. Mm. You know. Um, Imagine like in 2001 when he's going for the for the Tiger Slam if there'd have been Twitter, you know. I mean, now listen, he had a he had to face some of it uh in the scandal, but it wasn't as big as it is now. Yeah. You know, and um uh and and yet I get the sense that he just he's able to compartmentalize it. He just doesn't you know, he doesn't look at it. It's, so if you don't look at it, if you don't know, it can't really bother you. Mm. Phil came to social media late and actually embraced it. And then he would be getting into Twitter squabbles with people, which was kind of funny to me. 
<laughs> you know, like like that he would actually... from his iPad as well. You you can always see like the device that someone's tweeted from, and it usually said iPad iOS for iPad or whatever, which is just hilarious to think about. Phil sitting beside the pool and just you know hammering out zingers right. from his iPad. Right, or then he would respond to some random dude, you yeah. know, um, about something. Which you know, I mean, in a way, I, I I wish I think we all wish it could be that way. You know, like it it should be perfect world be a great way to interact with fans, but of course there's all the idiots out there who ruin it, and it, you know a lot of these guys like Rory and Speed they they just don't go on there anymore because the negativity is so severe. It's mm. like why why bother why why subject yourself to that? Yeah, but you and I in the media we're so immersed in Twitter that we we can't understand, but someone from the outside like tiger just just sort of like puts it in in plain english and says well why look at that <laughs> yeah right exactly um, to bring it back to your book it, it, obviously it's an incredible read um and and i think one of the merits of the book is the fact that it it pieces together a rivalry when maybe that rivalry didn't flesh out as often as we wanted it to and and, and when i say that i point to the, the fact that tiger and phil rarely played together in a major championship in any round not just the weekend but in any round um, I think I think by my account, there's the 97 PGA, uh, there is the 99 US Open, the 2001 Masters final round when they were paired together. It was an epic battle that that maybe doesn't get chatted enough about, and then also the the, the 2006 PGA Championship. The first two rounds they were paired together with Jeff Ogilvy, and then the 2009 Masters final round. That's not very often for two of you know arguably the greatest players in the history of the sport, two of the biggest stars that have maybe ever graced the fairways. Um, is was that an inspiration for you to put this book together? The fact that they actually didn't meet very often in the majors. Uh, no, but in, it, but in a backward way, it, it 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 was a it was another thing to address. In that, you could certainly make the argument that that there wasn't a great rivalry. Like I tried to address this in there. Like there's people that said to me, "Well, what are you talking about? Tiger had no rival." You know what? It's a fair point if you want to go that way. Tiger's rival might have been Jack or history, you know, and he didn't look at Phil as a rival, but I don't, I don't believe that. He saw Phil as a threat, it, it, certainly after Phil won his first Masters. Hmm. But the fact that they didn't, um, that they weren't paired in majors more is, is, is unfortunate. I, I think it's our loss. It's partly yeah. bad. It's part bad luck you know, that that didn't happen more because there's plenty of majors where they were close, hmm. you know, like, so in other words, it could have happened, you know, the, 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 um, us open at Beth page. Yes. I mean, the Phil, Phil finished second at that one, you know, they were like a group or two apart. Hmm. Um, it, uh, in, in Oh four Phil tiger kind of had a, an off year. Uh, and so that was a year that was, a. a he was going through a swing change in 04. And, and Hank Haney, he, right. his new coach at the time, Hank Haney. Yeah, although it wasn't official. Like, we didn't really know for sure. And Phil finally found the magic. He won the Masters. He easily could have won the U.S. Open at Shinnecock. He played in the last group with Retief and made a, you know, a double bogey at the 71st hole or 70th hole late, late in the round. Uh, you know, he was in contention for the first time ever at, a, at an Open. The one that Ernie that uh, it was Ernie lost in a playoff to Todd Hamilton. Phil missed that playoff by a shot at Royal Troon, which which uh, you know he had never done anything in the Open. And then at, at Whistling Straits, the VJ won. He was also in the mix. Tiger wasn't in the mix in any of them. His best finish in a major that year was ninth. And so that year they really weren't. But in 05, uh, you know Tiger won the Masters. Um, Phil won the PGA and Tiger finished like third. They they could have easily they they were close enough to where they could have been in the in the same group. Uh, in in 06, uh, Phil won the Masters. Tiger finished second. Bitterly disappointed because he knew his dad was dying and he really wanted to win that one. But they weren't the same group. They were close. You know, uh, obviously in 2010 when Phil won the Masters, Tiger coming back from. The scandal, first tournament back, finishes tied for fourth. For the first time ever in a Masters, Tiger broke 70 in the first round. His first round back after the scandal is a 68 at Augusta. It's really, <laughs> it was, it's really another thing that's sort of been underplayed 
how great that round was given the pressure, you know, but Phil won that one. He played in the last group with Westwood. Tiger was in the mix. It's possible that they, that it could have aligned that they'd have played together and they didn't. And then 13, when Phil won the open at Muirfield, Tiger was ahead of him. Tiger was two shots back on the last round. Westwood was the leader. Everybody thought finally Tiger's going to win that major now. And Phil blew by them all. So, you know, there was a lot of opportunities for them to be paired. Um, and, you know, the, in retrospect, I wonder if the PGA Tour wishes it had done things a little bit differently with their pairings. They purposely put them apart in first two rounds. They purposely kept them apart. They didn't pair them. They, uh, they often put them on opposite sides of the draw. So, like, if Tiger had the 1 o'clock tee time uh, on Thursday, Phil had the 1 o'clock tee time on Friday, and they flipped. They were completely opposite. And so that makes it harder to get paired together, too, because even if your scores are close, you're going to, you know, it's first in, last out on the weekend. The, ch- the chances of you being in the same group are, are, much, are much more remote because you've, been, you've come from different sides of the draw. So it's, it's unfortunate, I think, that they didn't, that they didn't go head-to-head more often. And, and, and is that, like, you just mentioned the tour, but also at the majors, I, I think from memory that the US Open, the PGA, and the Open Championship have the ability to create those historical pairings, you know, the, the, the US amateur champion with the reigning US Open champion, all that sort of stuff. Is that a little bit on them as well for not getting those groups together and, and potentially trying to spread, you know, tr- trying to sort of spread the crowds out, spread the ratings out, and sort of, you know, not have like a Thursday morning dominant and a Friday afternoon dominant and actually sort of spread the interest throughout the tournament gradually? Do you think that's why they did that? No question. I mean, you know, and I listen, you can make the argument it would have been silly to put them together given the crowds. Hmm. You know, I mean, at the at the uh, you know, one of the times that we're we're forgetting that where they were paired together was 2008 U.S. Open. They were they were grouped in the first two rounds with with Adam Scott. Yeah. And the USGA for the first time decided to group players by world ranking. Hmm. And, and it, it was, was one, one, two, and three, correct? Correct. And so you know, it was Tiger number one, Phil number two, and Adam was number three. And they, you know that was a wild scene, the two of them in the same group, you know, but in a major, I don't know that you really run the risk of there's, there's going to be tons of people there anyway. There's, they're not going to, I think people are going to watch no matter what. Uh, And so it's not necessarily such a bad thing to put them together. Remember in 2018, the players championship actually grouped them together. The first two rounds with Ricky Fowler, that was a first and forever that the tour did that. Um, and you know what? It was okay. You know, was, the world didn't come to an end. You know, um, the tournament still did quite well with, with, without them being spread out. So, you know, but I get it. There was, there's, you want to have, you want to have the draws, you know, both days, you want to have some of the name guys going off late. And uh, that's how they chose to do it. In its 51st year of publication, Australian Golf Digest is the oldest golf media brand in Australia, reaching over 850,000 golfers every month. Australian Golf Digest provides the best written and video news in golf, both locally and internationally. Golf fans can get full access to the magazine through the digital pass, which starts from just $3.33 per month and also includes instruction, golf course and golf travel content. Head over to australiangolfdigest.com.au or check them out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. One one of the battles they actually did have, which was incredible, was the 2005 tournament at Doral in Miami. Can you take us through why that was such a captivating battle between the two of them? I I believe that Tiger started the final day two shots back of Phil. He was the 54-hole leader, and Tiger ended up winning. Set the scene for us there. Yeah, that well, that ended up you know being a being a big year, a big year for the two of them uh in in the majors they 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 won three of the four uh and the year before finally phil had finally broken through um had the great year in the majors tiger did not then they had the ill-fated pairing at the Ryder cup in in the fall of 04 Hmm. so then you know they're probably not going to really come in contact with each other much after that 
And in 05, Phil won a couple times early on. He was off to a really hot start. The, the Masters is a month away when Doral was played. Everybody's sort of gearing up for that first major. And then what do you have? You have the two headliners actually get in the final group on Sunday. And Phil was playing great at that time. And, you know, Tiger, Tiger caught him with an unbelievable eagle on the 12th hole at Doral. Six, it was a 600-yard par five that he hit in two, and he made the putt. And, you know, he, he, you know, he actually got ahead of him, on, I believe, on the 13th hole. And, and when, when he got ahead, you just figured it was, it was over. Tiger's ahead. But Phil fought back and, and caught him. And they had, they, it went all the way to the end where finally, you know, Phil was a shot down on 18. And there's this, there's still a great photograph of Phil narrowly missing a chip that would have tied it. And then Tiger still had to make like a four or five footer to win for par. So it was crazy to think if Phil had gone in and Tiger had missed, Phil would have won. Um, but no, that was probably their best duel. The fans were crazy. Um, I, there's a, I have a, a funny, a fun story in the book from Rick Smith, Phil's coach, who at the time, who said Phil used to warm up twice uh, a lot on the weekends. He'd go out early and get like his, this longer warm up in. And then, and then he would like go to the gym or, you know, get stretched or, you know, eat lunch, whatever, and then go back out and do kind of just a routine warm up before going to the first tee. Like a lot of guys do, they just, you know, they take it right into the first tee. Yeah. And, but he, but basically what he said was, is Phil was playing so well and hitting it so great. Like, why do you even need to go back out? <laughs> like they went in and they did the routine with the trainer or whatever, and, you know, had some lunch. And they just decided to not go back out and practice and, and kind of leave everybody wondering. And they That's really awesome. did. People didn't know where he was. Like, what's going on? Phil's not warming up. He's not. Where is he? You know? And he just sort of strolled onto the first tee, like right at the last second to create this drama. And, <laughs> uh, you know, so it's kind of neat that Phil like saw the moment. And yeah. he, he loved that Tiger was in the chase. He wanted to beat Tiger. And Tiger loved it too. And they both... They were both incredibly complimentary of each other afterward. You know, it was like one of the first times where you actually saw Phil had always shown respect towards Tiger. You know, Tiger's was more grudging towards Phil. This time it was seemingly sincere. Like there was a great bit of respect after that. That was a hard fought battle. Phil was bitterly disappointed. Tiger was elated, but also relieved because he knew how hard it was that day. And, and probably their, their second greatest battle, and, and you could all, almost argue it, it is the greatest because it happened at the Masters, but the 2001 Masters final round is a really funny anecdote that, that was sort of sort of well-known, and Steve rehashed it for my series uh, with him, and that was the 13th hole, the par 5. Tiger um, Tiger hit a three-wood. Like, Phil hit a beautiful you know drive down the middle of the fairway, nice high cut as a left-hander, and then Tiger, just to intimidate Phil because he knew it was a pivotal moment on the back nine on Sunday... He hits a three-wood 20 yards past Phil's driver. And and as they're walking off the tee, Phil says to him, hey, do you normally hit your driver, uh, your three-wood that far? And Tiger says, no, sometimes I hit it farther. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That, that, yeah. was, that was important, wasn't it? And, and that was sort of the highlight of an epic battle at the Masters in the final group and the final round. Steve said that Phil played phenomenal on the front nine that day. Like it was incredible golf, you know, and, and it was just... You know, and 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 there looked like for a time he was going to win. You know, he was going to beat Tiger. People forget this. You know, I think people forget it because Tiger, in the end, won somewhat easily. Like he had a, I think Duval was in the clubhouse. Um, Phil had fallen back. Phil Phil bogeyed the 16th with a three putt, and Phil has since said, you know. I knew how hard it was to beat Tiger and I made a huge mistake on 16 and, you know, I get to 18 knowing back then, you know, the, the course was different. It was shorter. He goes, I'm two shots back. How, how am I going to make this up when I know he's going to have a wedge into the green, you know, and it was deflating. Yeah. And so, and so then Tiger actually rolled in a birdie putt on 18 to, I believe to beat Duvall by two. And so people see two shots, Duvall second, Phil third. But the, the fact of the matter is, is Phil was right there for a good, really until the 16th. 
And can you imagine if he would have derailed the Tiger Slam, which was oh, all any, anybody was talking about in golf? Yeah, um, just to just to set the scene for the listeners, Tiger had won the last three majors of two thousand, so he was coming into the Masters with a chance to win to, to be the first and only to this point golfer to win four majors in a row. And you know, because it wasn't a calendar career grant uh, calendar slam, people were calling it the Tiger Slam. But there were eight months in between the third and fourth major victories. And and to, uh, Steve told me in my series that the 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 attention and the hype was so stifling that Tiger actually turned off ESPN and TV and Golf Channel for for like two months before that Masters. It was all anybody was talking about from January one on. And what was crazy is this Tiger. He wasn't playing badly, but he wasn't winning early in the year. He got off to just kind of an okay start. He didn't win anything like in January or February. And so all of a sudden there became this narrative that he was in a, quote, slump. And it annoyed the hell out of Tiger to the point (laughs) where he was really um, pissy with Jimmy Roberts uh, during an interview at Bay Hill that year. Um, Tiger did win at Bay Hill, the Arnold Palmer tournament. Um, that was his first win of the year. Then he won the players. So yeah. that's the other thing people forget. Not only did he win the four majors, but he also won the so-called fifth major. That's he won right. the four majors and the players during that stretch. Yeah. And we all know how hard it is to sustain it from August of the, of the year before into April of the next year. Things change greatly. You know, in some ways, it was it was more impressive than winning four in a row in, in the same year because Tiger was clearly on a hot streak in 2000. I mean, he wins the U.S. Open by 15. He wins the, the, the British, the Open Championship by eight, you know, and then he goes to the PGA, which was a course that was yielding a good number of birdies. And he runs mm-hmm. into a guy, Bob May, out of nowhere, who's playing the golf of his life. And has to beat him in a playoff. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, like you could see maybe there might be just like you'd exhale and there might be a little bit of a letdown after that. And now you're going to try to get it cranked up again for the Masters the next year. Um, and he did. And yeah. it's pretty amazing. That, that's a good point. It, it's it's almost more impressive than winning four majors in the same year because because of that layoff and, and the suspense and the buildup. But also, I made this point to Steve in, in the podcast that um, I'm actually glad that Tiger didn't win four four in the same year. He won four in a row because it gave him his own Tiger branding on it. It was it's the Tiger Slam, and I think that probably carried more weight in the media than than maybe if he had won four in a year. I don't know if that's wildly incorrect, but it's just a theory that I have that it was good for his branding and good for the branding of the Tiger Slam that it wasn't a a, a Grand Slam. Well, I mean, the, the, there there was the fact that there was any kind of trying to take away from it because it wasn't all in the same year, is somewhat comical to me. I mean, you know, you won four in a row. It's unbelievable achievement. Yeah, would have been cool to win all four in the same year? Absolutely. I mean, and there's, there's the point to be made that the pressure of that would have been just as astronomical, of course. You know, in, in 02, he, he tried to do that. He won the first two. There was unbelievable hype going to the Open. He was two shots back going into the third round playing with his buddy, Marco Mir at Muirfield. It wasn't, couldn't have been set up any better. And then he kind of got some bad luck. I mean, a really horrific storm blew in. He played the first 12 or 13 holes in, you know, sideways rain, uh, you know, wind chills in the thirties. It was very cold and, you know, he blew up. He just, and, and Ernie Els who played, who was behind him managed to birdie a bunch of holes coming in when the weather calmed down, you know, Ernie played in some tough conditions too. But he was able to turn it around, and Tiger was way back and out of it, you know. But then he goes to that PGA and is in contention. I mean, Tiger had a chance in o in o two also. Uh, so it's just hard, but that just shows you how hard it is to do. You know, all, t- all it takes is one bad day. You know, well, the same is true if you're playing the four in a row over two years. All it takes is one bad day, and he managed to pull it off. Now, Bobby, I want to bring up a particularly interesting moment from your book and also from the timeline of Tiger and Steve Williams, my co-host for Series 1, and that's the comments that he made in New Zealand at the end of 2008, a couple of months after Tiger had won the US Open. You know, I think, you know, from memory, he called Phil a prick in like a dinner joke setting that he wasn't aware there was a journalist in the crowd who ended up filing a story. Can you take us through that? 
Yeah, and and you know that got some legs. He 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 just basically said he he didn't care much for Phil. Um, you know, he, he, we 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 don't we don't get along. And I, you know, actually, you know, he, he actually said, yeah, I you know I, I you know, and that's sort of you know in, in a storytelling mode. And I'm sure he got a lot of laughs. And and while maybe maybe he didn't mean to use that word, he certainly wasn't backing off from it. And, and, you know, when, when somebody, when somebody re, a media person reached out to him about it, he didn't deny it. He said, yeah, I said it. I also didn't think it was in a place where it was going to be reported, but I said it. And look, it caused, because it was Tiger and because it was Phil, it caused a bit of a controversy. Tiger had to come out and, and basically he had to admonish Steve in public, you know, even though probably behind the scenes he's sitting there thinking it was hilarious, and 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 I don't know that, but I mean you can guess that he's probably sitting there going, "Oh, great, what do I care?" You know. But public persona being what it was, he had to say that. And Phil issued an apology, and you know, it, and it, and it, you know, it kind of lingered longer than it might have if it had been anybody else. But because it was them, it was. A big deal. And, and I, when I talked to Steve for the book and I brought that up, he's like, yeah, look, you know, I, I just I, I have him. He he was sort of trying to not backtrack from it, but given perspective of time, he was basically saying, look, you know, the two of us just didn't get on. You know, we I did not see eye to eye with him, but I have immense respect for what he did. You know, I have immense respect for him as a player. So he was basically just saying, look, you know, we're just, we just weren't going to be friendly. We weren't friends. You know, I didn't care for him, but I get how great of a golfer he was. And I remember he, the, the line was something like, uh, like, what was the line that Steve said at that dinner? Can you remember the quote? Uh, you know, I, I, I think he said, look, I, I just, I just don't, I just don't like the guy. I think he's a prick, hmm. you know, and it, it laughter or whatever. Somebody probably asked him about Phil, you know, yeah. what do you think of Phil? Whatever. And, uh, you know, listen, listen, Phil throughout his career, I talk about in my book, there's people who think he was disingenuous, people who think he was phony, whatever. I'm sure Steve thought that. I bet Tiger, I think Tiger, although he has never said this, you can read between the lines and sense that Tiger thought Phil was full of it a lot of times. And I think it bothered Tiger that Phil had all this love and affection despite not having as good of a record. Phil yeah. was very, very popular, very mm. popular. He was sort of the Arnie to, you know, to, to, uh, uh, to, to Jack. That, he was the know, people's champion. And, yeah. and you could see that, you know, they, they call the, the 2002 U.S. Open at Bethpage in New York, where Phil is beloved in the, in the state of New York. And they call that the people's Open. And he had probably, you know, I wasn't there, but from watching and reading about it, he had more support than Tiger did that week. People loved him, and it, and I think that got on Tiger's nerves a little bit, and then, and then so if you have that narrative that you think he's that he that he's you know a phony, well that play that plays into it even more. And Tiger, hmm. Tiger had you know, but but they were completely different. Tiger was you know blinders on, look couldn't see anything other than what was right in front. Didn't wave, didn't smile. Was not great with with autograph signing. Phil looking at everybody, smiling, thumbs up, eye contact, signing for a thousand people afterward. Now, if he was doing that with gritted teeth and swearing under his breath, maybe he was. I don't know. And people think that he was just doing it for effect. But my take on that has always been, wouldn't you rather him fake it and, and make it look like you care than not care at all, not show yeah. that you care? I mean, like it, 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 it was smart. We all do things we don't want to do. You know, we do, we, we try to take the high road to make things look better. You know, okay, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fight this. I'm going to go do it. Phil, that's how Phil sort of was a lot, even though there's plenty of evidence to, to show that there were many times Phil didn't want to do it. He wanted to sneak out a back door. He wanted to go another way so he wouldn't have to do it. But a majority of the time he did. And, you know, people loved him for it. In its 51st year of publication, Australian Golf Digest is the oldest golf media brand in Australia, reaching over 850,000 golfers every month. Australian Golf Digest provides the best written and video news in golf, both locally and internationally. Golf fans can get full access to the magazine through the digital pass, 
which starts from just $3.33 per month and also includes instruction, golf course and golf travel content. Head over to australiangolfdigest.com.au or check them out on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Now, now, Bobby, I want to talk about you a little bit here because, you know, like like you sort of, in a way, took me under my wing when I when I first came out on tour, and and there was a really cool moment with both yourself and and Steve Demeglio when um, Tiger had just been announced as the as the Presidents Cup captain. Um, it was in 2018, sort of 12 months or no 18 months ahead of the 2019 Presidents Cup in my homeland of Australia, um, and. The, the the people that who are sort of organizing the president's cup they gave some access to media back in australia and and i wasn't included on that call and i i got reamed by my editor he gave me a call and said how come this newspaper in melbourne has this these quotes and this access to tiger and you don't and i, and I was kind of shitting bricks and the <laughs> next day <laughs> the next day during the pro-am I, I knew that you and steve had really good a really good relationship with not only tiger but his team as well and i explained the situation and and you and Steve sort of, you know, greased the skids with his his manager at the time, Glenn Greenspan. And eventually, within an hour, I was sort of walking with Tiger for half a hole. And like, like that's unheard of. Like, you know, people outside the business probably wouldn't appreciate any one-on-one with Tiger Woods. It, it is f- phenomenally hard to get. And you, you, the two of you managed to wield that access for me as a favor within, within an hour. It, it, it was phenomenal. So tell me about you and how... You know what was the first major that you t- that you covered that Tiger won, and then how how long did it take you to develop that rapport with him and his team? <laughs> now you're going to date me because the first major that I covered that he won was the '97 Masters. I've wow. been I've I've been at all of them for both, so all what all 21, and um, but I mean it took me probably 10 years to get a relationship. I mean, when I was working at a Florida newspaper, that was harder. He wasn't going to see what I was doing as much. We didn't have where I live. We didn't have a tour event that he frequented. So, you know, that was, that was good. You know, other than to recognize me, he wouldn't have known me that that changed when I went to work at ESPN and look, I just made it a, uh, I, I made it a, a, I made a conscious decision that I needed to get to know him and him, me. And I needed to be out front with my attempts to try to, um, you know, get him to understand that I, I, I wanted some access when possible. And as you've noted, where that typically came was during practice rounds and pro-amps inside the ropes. And if you didn't abuse that, if you weren't hovering for the whole 18 holes, let's say maybe a hole or two, it could work to your advantage because it, first of all, Tiger's not going anywhere. You're not taking away from his time. You could tell when he wasn't engaged as much in the process that he was going through that day, especially in a pro-am after nine holes, you know, the, 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 the pro-am partner thing is sort of worn off. They're just getting through the day. He doesn't mind seeing a couple of new faces here and there. And he came to trust people and had no problem helping them out. Like, like it, you're right. You're never going to, you weren't going to get Tiger one-on-one in the locker room or, you know, at, at lunch or something, but those, and, and I always felt this was never appreciated properly where I worked. Those little times were huge. Because you got little snippets, you got little, little anecdotes, you got little tidbits of information that you could use that showed up in stories. Sometimes there were news, sometimes it was subtle, because you had to be careful. You know, you just had to, you're, you're sort of towing a line. You don't want to abuse the privilege. And sometimes the knowledge is more important than reporting something. You know, just being able to know something, it's going to help you down the road. And so that was always a fine line. And Steve was the same way. And there was other, other guys that he was, uh, that he was good with that way, you know, and I just always tried to make it that I was never going to like be a burden. Um, and you know, I wanted to, I wanted to say hello. I, 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 you know, maybe it would be for nine holes. I'd walk, watch him. Obviously you're going to glean a lot of insight into his game. Sometimes you talk to his caddy. Uh, you know, and then, you know, maybe for like uh, several times, I recall getting set up to talk about something of substance and he agreed to do it during a pro-am and it would be like, I'd walk with him for two holes and in between shots, I'd ask him all the questions. 
And you'd be amazed how many questions you can ask in that amount of time that could, that could set up an entire story. Yeah. Uh, and that, that 2008 U.S. Open comes to mind because I think it was at the memorial that year that, uh, that I got him. And, I, and I'm pretty sure Steve was there with me. And we just peppered him with questions. I, I want to say the, uh, uh, there was a hole on the front nine that was a par five at, at, uh, at Muirfield Village where we just, you know, after he hit his tee shot, he knew, and he just came over us. He goes, okay, go ahead, fire away. And so we just, <laughs> we started boom, boom, question, question, you know, 300 yards later, he gets to his drive and then we back off and he hits the shot and then boom, a couple more questions before we get to the ball, the next ball, you know, gets, hits it on the green, a couple more questions, then coming off the green and then after the next tee shot and then boom, we're done. Yeah. You know, and, and, and he's, he's sort of, he's done us a huge favor but like how much did it really hurt him? You know, no. not that much, you know, and, 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 and he's happy to do it in that format, which isn't wasting any of his time really. Uh, and uh, you know, that happened, that happened many times. And, and I've got a little story sort of similar to that. And the, and the reason I'm going to bring it up is because I'm going to ask what, what did you learn about Tiger that, you know, the general public wouldn't know. And that was, I had the exact same setup. Um, I've been lucky enough in my career to have three one-on-ones with Tiger and, uh, the the most recent one was uh, in Tokyo when he won that he he ended up winning the Zozo Championship that week. You were there, Steve Demeglio was there, and Tiger's team had arranged for like you know twenty minutes of access for me to get some really good Presidents Cup stories in the can, and so they organised for me to walk this par five at, at that course there and just outside Tokyo, um, and we were walking and talking and and Mark Steinberg his agent actually wasn't there, so it was kind of like this free reign where I wasn't going to get cut off exactly after fifteen minutes. And I read the room, you know, his caddy, Joey LaCava, was listening and having a good time and offering some answers as well. And we ended up, we ended up walking for two holes and I was just getting, I actually ran out of questions, which is like, you know, you get this precious time with maybe the greatest athlete who's ever lived and you actually run out of questions. Um, but there was like, I asked him a question about, you know, what's, what's the first thing you think of when, when, when I bring up the word Australia? And, and he joked about kangaroos. But then he went on to he went on to give this really thoughtful answer about how all the all the the golfers that he's played against from Australia over the years he's always respected how much they they had to travel to for their craft because you know like you come from an island nation like like I come from you got to go out into the world and and play the PGA Tour play the European Tour and so he had immense respect for Greg Norman and Ian Baker Finch in that sense and then he mentioned this tournament which is called the Tri Nations and it's 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 like a it's like a, a three nation competition in the world of rugby hugely hugely popular in the world of rugby and i thought tiger knowing what the tri nations is is so nuanced that's like an aussie who's never heard of nfl or doesn't know anything about american football knowing what the nfc championship is it's so niche Ooh. and um it just i sort of it resonated with me that you know tiger comes across a thousand people a day but you know when it when it matters he, he learns a little bit about that person about their homeland and gives them this little nugget just to show that hey I care a little bit about you and your time. I, w- I want to offer you something that, that you can walk away and, and think I had a good interaction with Tiger Woods. And that's something that I learned about him personally. He takes pride in what people in his industry think of him. So so what's what's an example like that where you gleaned something from Tiger and you thought, wow, that, that's something I didn't know about him, the man, Tiger Woods, the man. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good. That's interesting. I mean, I had several um, times where, you know, just small talk, you know, asking me like, you know, he knows where I live. Hey, you guys, do, how'd you guys survive the, the hurricane? You know, I live mm. on the West coast of Florida. So yeah. like, it would be like, you know, he obviously knows that there was some big hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico and how'd you guys come out of that or whatever, you know, just little things like that. Or how's your son doing? He knew I had, you know, uh, he, he knew I had a son that was, you know, of a certain age or whatever, what's he doing? What do you, you know, so yeah, you're right. There's like interpersonal things like that, that, um, you know, humanized them because at many, many times, I don't think we saw that we didn't see the human side, you know, he was, he, he was for much of his career, very robotic, you know, very programmed. His answers in press conferences were programmed. Uh, and so I think to show another side was, was impressive. And again, you know, the later he went, the more perspective he gained. I think when he became a parent, that helped a lot. Um, also, uh, you know, having been humbled 
helped a lot, as did the perspective he gained from injury. You know, that might have been the biggest. You know, now we now we're dealing with it again. It's even pronounced. You know, he was so thankful to be playing at the Masters. You know, he was incredibly thankful to be playing at the Masters in 2018, the first year that he came back. But it was even more so now, four years later, given what he'd been through with the car crash and everything. And do you have a couple of, you know, anecdotes or, or personal stories with Tiger where you, you had to pinch yourself and just and just think, not only how good is my job, but, but also <laughs> a, a pat on the back for how hard you work to get that access and that relationship with him? There's maybe one that stands out, which is um, when he won at Bay Hill in 2013. So, you know, he's he had won three times in 12, and I believe that was his third win of the year already in 13. He had gone back to number one, and the tournament finished on a Monday because of weather. So it was like it finished at like noon, one o'clock. And, uh, and I was, I was in the media center. You've been there at Bay Hill writing in the media yep. center and like in the middle of the afternoon, having to get it done and got word that tiger was in the locker room still. And somebody had said, Hey, he wants you and so-and-so and so-and-so to come in there. I was like, what? He goes, yeah, he wants you to come on by. Well, what it was, was he was in there celebrating it was oh, really? him and Joe, uh, Lacava a couple of other people and they were well into it at this point. Really? And they were yucking it up and they were having a big old time. <laughs> and th this was 2013. So the, on, on the last hole, I think Tiger had a two shot lead and he hit a drive down the right side in the rough at Bay Hill. And you know, the hole there's water in front yep. with the lead. You're, you're never in a million years going to go for the green there. You, so you just lay it up. And he knock it on the green and he, and he wins, right? Two putts makes bogey. Well, at some point we were sitting there and he was just in front of a locker and there was a couple of drinks flowing. I was not drinking, by the way, because I was still <laughs> working. But I was just sort of enjoying the banter. And there was some good banter going on. And all of a sudden, Arnie walks in, Arnold Palmer. What? Co comes into the locker room. And he goes over to the men's room, all right, and he uses the men's room, and he's at the like he's in the area where the sinks are, and he's washing his hands and he's combing his hair, and all of a sudden you hear him bellow out to Tiger, and he calls him another word for a wimp, because, <laughs> he, because he because he hit it, he laid up on eighteen, yeah, and he was he was just like laid it on, oh, you, you know the word. I'm guessing it I, starts with P. I can't believe you did that. You didn't go for the green. He was just screaming it at the top of his lungs as across the room. <laughs> and Tiger was absolutely loving it. He was absolutely <laughs> loving it. He thought it was so great. That and, is sensational. Yeah. And so it was kind of like a cool moment to be to see. And it was just Arnie ribbing him, you know. And they, they had one of the all-time great photos that's been taken after that where where uh, at the prize giving ceremony where, you know, they, they, they used to give a jacket mm. and Tiger's got that Bay Hill jacket on and Arnie's got him in this big bear hug. You know, they're both got these huge grins. They probably told some, yeah. some off color joke or something. between <laughs> them. But anyway, that was like kind of a neat, a neat thing to witness that where he let his guard down a little bit. Oh, that's incredible. Like you, you tell your grandkids that stuff. That's, you, you remember that forever. That's t two of the, the greatest golfers who have ever lived just putting shit on each other in, in a locker room. And not only that, it's it's also cool that Tiger has actually thought of you in that moment to bring you around for a beer. It's really cool. Yeah, it was pretty neat. I wish I could have taken him up on it a little bit more. But uh, And, you know, they were uh, – that was back when they had this thing called the Tavistock Cup. Mm -hmm. um, that was like a, an event that was played after Bay Hill – at where you know over where tiger used to live at isleworth yeah and uh, it ended up only being like a one-day thing the next day so joe was going to be sticking around and joe was having a great time it was just kind of you know it was more just to to see him in a different realm hmm. you know than than what we're so used to yeah it's 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 amazing some of those moments and you've crafted an amazing book out of this tiger and phil golf's most fascinating rivalry so tell us about, you know, where, where can we buy this book? 
Well, within days, it should be in bookstores because it's um, it's being released on April 26th. Um, it's available for pre-order. The best place is just to go to Amazon, yep. and they will ship it out on that day. Uh, so that's that's the easy way. If if you uh, go to my Twitter bio at Bob Herrig, I've got a link there. Um, pretty easy to find. So, uh, but hopefully soon here you'll start to see it on in in on bookshelves and bookstores. Awesome. All right. Well, Bob Herrig, legendary golf journalist. He's with Sports <laughs> Illustrated Morning Read. He's just written Tiger and Phil. Uh, make sure you get on Amazon and buy it and pre-order it or go to your nearest bookstore and support your nearest bookstore. Uh, Bob, thanks for joining us on Chasing Majors. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. <laughs>